Hey, good morning. Who's ready for football season? Nobody? Nobody? Why did, why did you Why did you have to go there, Larry? Pepperdine doesn't even have a football team, so there. <laughs> well, if you're like me, I'm, I'm a really big football fan, college football, college football the most. I enjoy the NFL, Cowboys fan, unfortunately. Um, but this is always like, summer is the roughest stretch if, for, if you're a sports fan, if, especially if you're a football fan, because it just seems like there's really nothing on. I mean, I guess there's some golf. Okay. Uh, not really. The NBA Finals are finishing up, so I guess we have that. But this is such a dead period right now. And in the church calendar, it's, per- it's pretty much the same in the church calendar, believe it or not. Uh, you know, we had Easter. We had eight weeks of Easter, and then we had Pentecost, and last week was Trinity Sunday. And then now the church calendar calls this ordinary time. Like they couldn't come up with anything better to call this period other than ordinary time. So, uh, so I thought, well, th- this is kind of boring. We should we should do something. Not that the Bible's boring, but you know, what I mean. uh, we should do something different during ordinary time. And so I thought um, I had some people ask me, you know, that one of the very first Sundays I spoke. Uh, I mentioned this sort of motif of love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. And a lot of people have come to me and they're like, well, I don't, still don't really get what that really means. And so I thought, well, during this period, we can go through uh, in ordinary time and kind of spend a few weeks on each one. So uh, this morning, we are going to start uh, with love God, which sounds really simple. And then when you kind of think about it, it's like, oh, yeah, well, how... How do we really do that? What does is, what is loving God really look like uh, in 2016? And so I thought we'd go through a, a few different ideas in Scripture of how do we love God? What, is the, what does the Bible say it, are we characterized by when we think about this idea of loving God? So that's where we're going to start. And you may notice there are markers kind of scattered around. Those are not to reserve seats. Uh, I want... I want if you're on this half of, of the room, I want you to write either on your hand or in your bulletin or something. I have it on my hand. Uh, if you're on this side, write down God Wrestler. God Wrestler. If you're bold and you want to write on your hand, you can do that. If you want to write in your uh, bulletin, God Wrestler. If you're on this side, which is most of us today really weighted on this side, uh, You can write on your hand or in your or on your bulletin. I have mine on my hand. So this side is God wrestler, and this side is limping warrior. Limping warrior. All right, so write that down. Limping, limping warrior. Well, that's good. All the better. Has anyone here ever been in a like a like a full-on fight. Sal, have you been in a fight? Sal, Sal's definitely been in a fight. 
Who, who raised their hand over here? Chandra, you, Dwayne, you've been in a fight? Oh, my gosh. All right, so I've 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 never I've never been in like a full-on fight. Uh, you know, I grew up in Texas and purposefully decided not to play football. So if that if that tells you anything, uh, and when you when you grow up under five foot, you make it you make it a thing that you just don't fight because if you're four foot eight, you're just probably your chances aren't good. So I never got into a fight, but since my my parents are here, I thought I'd tell the story because this story is really funny. So uh, this is my, my story of my non-fight fight. So whenever I was elementary school age, I lived on, I lived on this street in, in Waco, Texas, where uh, everybody on the street had uh, kids roughly my age. And so we would you know, have neighborhood parties and play baseball outside and football and everything else. And then we'd all at night scatter back to uh, our own houses. And there was one guy on the block who was massive. I mean, he was the guy that was like five foot two in first grade and was like taller than the teacher. Dude was huge. And as I said, I was the exact opposite. So he took advantage of that. Would always bully me. I mean, just like always be punking me. So this was a well-known fact in my family. And so, uh, you know, I come to my dad after one such incident where he, you know, hit me across the face of this like giant plastic I don't even know what it was, like these giant plastic links just right across the face. So I come to my dad, and I'm like, you know, this, this kid's just, you know, bullying me. And my dad, being the wise, wise parent that he, he is and was, said, well, just hit him in the face with a baseball bat. <laughs> Easy enough. Just hit him in the face. Take a bat. Boom. Hit him in the face. I'm like, all right, you know probably like seven. I'm just like, fair enough. Sounds good to me. Thanks, Pop. So uh, next time, you know, we're all, uh, we're all playing in the, uh, this, this one uh, particular kid's backyard. Messes with me. So I, uh, I get up. I go into my friend's bedroom. I'm like, I know he's got this little, like, tub of assorted bats because we're all into baseball. So I was like, all right, what's going to be uh, a hard enough bat that's going to send a message but not too hard that I'm going to get in really big trouble. So I picked up one of those uh, like foam core bats where it's like hard on the inside but foam on the outside. I was like, this will hurt. So I pick it up, take it out of the, <laughs> I pick it up, take it out of the bin and just come up like right beside him and just like boom, sucker punch him with a baseball bat. Never mess with me again, uh, which is maybe a, a bad lesson. And later that night, uh, my mother got a phone call from a particular parent of that child that I assaulted. And <laughs> it was like, because uh, the, the, the mom of whose house we were at, you know, I think she came up and asked me, was like, why, why did you, why did you hit him with a bat? I'm like, my dad told me to. So, easy enough, I'm, I'm free of this crime. So my mom like walks into my dad. She's like, "Did you tell, tell Ryan to hit, hit Justin with a baseball bat?" And I was like, "Yeah, might have, might have done that at some point. I think, maybe." So today's story involves 
uh, a couple of fights, uh, actual fights, uh, and it's worth exploring the story because it's, it's a really well-known story in the Old Testament and one that really defines who the people of God are throughout the entire scripture. And that is the legacy that we carry today. Uh, and it's this idea of being God wrestlers, ones who struggle and fight with God. So if you will, uh, t- open, a, open your Bibles. There's uh, some Bibles in the seat back if you want to open up or pull it up on your, on your phone. We are going to be in Genesis 27, 41 to start off with, and then Genesis 32. We have a lot of text today, so we're going to try to read a little bit, talk a little bit, and then read a little bit and talk a little bit, as opposed to just what we normally do, reading the whole thing. So we'll start Genesis 27, 41. And to set up this story, you may be familiar with with, uh, Jacob in the Bible, Jacob and Esau. And uh, Jacob, uh, at this point in the story, has really been pretty conniving already. I mean, Jacob's entire life is built around uh, deception, uh, conniving, uh, colluding to get uh, wealthier, uh, to get a blessing from his father. And at this point, he has essentially stolen uh, the ancestral blessing that was supposed to be for his brother Esau. And uh, in 41, we'll pick it up. So Esau was furious at Jacob because his, because his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, When the period of mourning for, my death, for the death of my father is over, I will kill my brother. Dylan, have you been there? <laughs> Rebecca to- was told uh, what her older son Esau was planning, so she summoned her younger son Jacob and said to him, Esau, your brother, is planning revenge. He plans to kill you. So now, my son, listen to me. Get up and escape uh, to my brother Laban, who is in Haran. Live with him for a short while until your uh, brother's rage subsides. Until your brother's anger at you goes away and he forgets uh, what you did to him. Then I will send for you and bring you back from there. So we have this uh, stage set. Jacob's life is completely characterized by a life of conflict. And there's really, in the larger story, if you, if you want to go uh, read the, the whole story, 25 uh, to 33 is this uh, Jacob narrative. But there is this entire narrative of God's, the juxtaposition between God's blessing and all of the subsequent conflict that is uh, Jacob's life. So Jacob's life is just one conflict after another. Uh, and when we pick up the story in chapter 32... Uh, this period of him being gone has passed. So he goes uh, to Haran, lives with Laban for a while, and it's kind of like a TV show or a movie or like a TV show that has uh, several episodes in a season, and then all of a sudden you go from like episode three, and then four and five have a totally different narrative, and then you pick up story from three in, uh, in episode six. This is kind of like what we're doing here in 32. So when we leave off here in 45, the story picks up in 32.1, and uh, Jacob is now going to return home um, in this place. So flip over, if you will, to um, chapter Genesis chapter 32. And Jacob, uh, at this point, has been told by God to go back to the, to the land that was promised to him. 
So verse 1, Jacob went on his way, and I'm, I'm reading from the, the CEB today. Uh, Jacob went on his way, and God's messengers approached him. So already in verse 1, we have a divine event that Jacob is, is called to leave, and he's called to go back, and God's messengers uh, approaching him is a sign both to us, the reader, and to Jacob that uh, something special, something interesting is about to happen. Verse 2. When Jacob saw them, he said, Oh, this is God's camp. And he named the sacred place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him uh, to his brother Esau towards the land of Seir, uh, open country of Edom. He gave them these orders. Say this to my master Esau. All right, so he has his own messengers. The, the writer here is doing a little bit of wordplay. God sends his messengers to Jacob, and so Jacob sends his messengers on to Esau. So we have a little bit of that wordplay. And what does he do? He characterizes Esau by saying he is what? A master. So say this to my master Esau. So he tells this to his messengers. This is the message of your servant Jacob. I have lived as an immigrant with Laban, where I've stayed until now. I own cattle, donkeys, flocks, men servants, women servants, and I'm sending a message to my master now to ask that he will be kind. The messengers returned to Jacob and said, uh, we went out to your brother Esau, and he's coming back to meet you with 400 men. So, <laughs> so those are kind of uh, fighting words a little bit. You know, he's saying, all right, I've got, uh, you know, he, he wants to present that he, he left, became an immigrant with nothing, and now he's coming back, and he has, uh, you know, X amount of currency to offer Esau, you know, to appease him. And all they return with is, okay, he's going he's gonna to meet you with like 400 dudes. All right, that's it. That's all you're going to know. So verse 7, naturally, Jacob was terrified and felt trapped. So he divided the people with them. He divided the flocks, the cattle, the camels two, into two camps. He thought, if Esau meets the first camp and attacks it, then at least one camp will be able to uh, escape. So Jacob is now going completely practical. Verse 9. Jacob said, uh, okay, so right here, so that, he's going really practical, and in verse 9, we get uh, one of the longest prayers in the book of Genesis. So we're totally switching gears here, and uh, Jacob goes from being practical to uh, now being vulnerable in prayer. So his shrewdness, Jacob being conniving, deceiver, uh, trickster that he is, uh, which is what the name Jacob essentially means, trickster. Uh, he's living up into that name, but he's also really, really scared. So now he's going to God in prayer. So he says, Lord, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. If you remember, if you're here last week, we talked about the idea that uh, up until uh, when Moses meets God in Exodus 3, uh, God is sort of known as the, the God of Abraham. So we have that uh, right here. God of Abraham, God of my father Isaac, who said to me, go back to your country and to your relatives, and I'll make sure things will go well for you. Verse 10. I don't deserve how loyal and truthful you have been to your servant. So he is uh, presenting a, a posture of humility there, at least acknowledging that his camels, his camps, his servants are not something that he's earned all by himself. So he, he is acknowledging that in verse 10. I don't deserve how loyal and truthful that you have been to your servant. I went away across the Jordan um, with just my staff, poor. But now I've come back with two camps. Save 
me for my brother Esau, please. I'm afraid that he will come meet me and kill me with all, my mother, with all the mothers and their children. You who were the one who told me, I will make, thing, I will make sure things go well for you. And this is an interesting phrase. He repeats it. I will uh, make sure things go well for you. In the Hebrew, uh, there's an extra word here in the second time that he mentions it. And it essentially doubles down. Surely, surely, I will make sure things go well for you. So he's, he's double emphasizing that uh, God's promise for him is that he doesn't die, basically. And I will make your descendants like the sea, sand of the sea um, so that you won't, uh, so many that you won't be able to count them. All right, so that is Jacob's prayer, his vulnerable prayer. All right, verse 13. Jacob spent the night there. So he's staying there out in the desert, somewhere in between Haran and the promised land here. And Jacob spent the night there. From what he had acquired, he set a gift aside for his brother Esau. He sets aside 200 female goats, uh, 20 male goats, uh, 200 ewes, uh, 20 rams, 30 nursing camels, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. So he really wants to know that his business business is in order for, for Jacob. He separated these herds and gave them to his servants. And he said, go ahead, put some distance between each uh, of the herds. He ordered the first group, uh, when my brother uh, Esau meets you and asks you, who are you with, where are you going, and whose herds are these in front of you, uh, say, they are your servants. Jacob's a gift sent to my master Esau, and Jacob is actually right behind us. Just bear in mind that he thinks this first group is probably going to be killed, so eh, maybe not so nice. He also ordered the second group and the third group, everybody following the herds, uh, say exactly the same thing to Esau when you find them. Say also to your servant, uh, Jacob is right behind us. Jacob thought, I may be, be able to pacify Esau with this gift I'm sending ahead. When I meet him, perhaps he will be kind to me. So Jacob sent ahead uh, all this gift that he had prepared for Esau and spent the night at that camp. All right, and now we come to our fighting text. So Jacob has essentially laid the groundwork for uh, basically pacifying his brother who he you know, deceived so many years ago uh, for, for taking his birthright. This will make up for it, and maybe he won't, he won't kill all of us. So this, this comes out of a, a place of fear. But he feels good probably about, about where he's at at this point. So 22, Jacob gets up during the night, and he takes his two wives, his two women servants, and his 11 sons, and he, he sends them to cross the Jabbok River, River's shallow water. So it, this is interesting, and it's contested on to what this really means here when it says uh, he spends the night at the camp, and then the next thing we know, he's getting up at night and sending out, he's sending out people. Uh, so some people aren't sure if he is second-guessing the original plan and decides to uh, send out in, in the night, you know, kind of as a, uh, to make sure that they're safe as well, that he doesn't feel sure with what he did during during the day. So either way, he sends his, uh, his servants off and his sons, they cross, and he decides to spend the night alone. So he took, he took them and everything that belonged to them and helped them cross the river, but Jacob stayed apart by himself. And in verse 24, a man, which that word is in the Hebrew, ish, an ish, say that, ish, ish, an ish wrestled with him until dawn broke. 
And we have Jacob alone in the desert, wrestling and peace until dawn. Verse 25. When the man saw that he could not defeat Jacob, he grabbed Jacob's thigh and tore a muscle in Jacob's thigh as he wrestled with him. And then the man says, Let me go, because dawn is breaking. And Jacob urged, I won't let you go until you bless me. And he said to Jacob, What is your name? And Jacob says, I am Jacob. And then the Ish responds and says, Nope, your name won't be Jacob any longer. It will be Israel, because you struggled with God and men and won. And then Jacob asked and said, Tell me your name. So this is, this is interesting. He says, tell me your name. And the east says, why do you ask my name? And he blessed Jacob right there. Jacob named the place Peniel because he had seen the face of God. My life has been saved, he said. And the sun rose, and Jacob passed Peniel, limping because of his thigh. And therefore the Israel, Israelites don't eat the tendon attached to the thigh muscle to this day. Because, Jacob gra- because he, the east had grabbed Jacob's thigh and tore the muscle at the tendon. So we have this really enigmatic story, this really mysterious story of this Ish who comes in the middle of the night to wrestle Jacob. So essentially Jacob has he has all of his business in order. He knows he thinks he knows what will pacify his, his brother's anger. He has a plan for how he's going to present himself and he knows who he is. And maybe he second guesses himself in the middle of the night. Maybe he doesn't. But either way, he decides to stay overnight and spend the night alone in the desert. And what is so fascinating about this is... Oh, there it is. Fascinating. What's so fascinating about this is uh, no one knows what each really means. Some translate it angel. Some translate it God. At the end, Jacob says, I have seen God face to face. Some people like to think that Jacob was simply uh, wrestling with himself, that he had this night of inner turmoil where he knew that uh, he was going to be meeting his brother and this conflict was was simply his way of working out this inner turmoil. But either way, he is wrestling with the divine here. I like to think that this, this passage is Jacob wrestling with God. And there's a few reasons why I, I think this, um, I feel like this reads better for, for us, this, translate, this uh, interpretation, and then I think it also reads better for who the people of Israel uh, knew themselves to be after this point uh, in their history. So we know that Genesis and the Old Testament are collecting memories from the Israelite people, the Hebrew people that uh, these uh, stories were passed down and recorded because at the very fabric of who it meant to be a Jewish person, that these were core, core teachings. And the fact that Jacob's name turns to Israel, that their entire people group is determined right in this marking that is given to them by God. So let's look back and kind of break this apart. Uh, In in verse uh, 24, says, Jacob stayed apart from himself and wrestled a man until dawn. When the man saw that he could not defeat Jacob, he grabbed Jacob's thigh and tore a muscle as he wrestled with him. So it's really interesting at this part in the story because in verse 25, 
uh, you know, they're tussling all night. But the advantage here is uh, with the ish, with God, that this divine wrestling, this divine turmoil, uh, at some level injures Jacob. That this is this is not an easy struggle. Uh, life is not not an easy struggle. And so right here, uh, the ish has the upper hand. God has the upper hand on Jacob. But then in verse 26, it, it totally flips because then the, the man says, you know, let me go because dawn is breaking. Now all of a sudden Jacob has the advantage and uh, God is saying, you know, let, let me go. Like, you know, let me go. And, and Jacob responds, uh, I won't go until you bless me. Well, the word uh, bless there, uh, in Genesis we have the, the ideas of promise uh, as you read through. Uh, the promise that is given to Abraham, the promise that is given to Isaac. Uh, the, na- the narrative of Jacob is all about blessing, and the way Jacob understood his story was tied up in this idea of blessing, which usually concerned uh, earthly realities. So it concerned livestock, it concerned uh, you know, wives, it concerned his money, and it concerned uh, procreation, it concerned children, that you would have uh, as many kids and grandkids as the sand of the sea that your descendants, you know, would go on and on and on. So whenever you have this idea of blessing, just think uh, earthly reality. Think earthly concern. So Jacob, whenever he approaches it, he's not letting God go. And he says, I want you, I won't let go until you bless me. So in Jacob's mind, he's thinking, I'm going to get some sort of safety, security, uh, whenever I came and, and tricked my father Isaac into giving me a blessing, it was this idea that I would have, I would become a, a wealthy person, that I would become a person with uh, many wives and many descendants, very concerned with earthly uh, sorts of realities in his life. And so when, when Jacob says, I won't go until you bless me, there's this idea floating around here that going to be concerning his future safety tomorrow whenever he meets his brother, that it's going to be concerned uh, his wives and his kids. All of that is in the, the backdrop of this request. But the East does not, he does, God does not fall into that. He, he just responds and he says, what's, what's your name? And what does Jacob for the first time have to do? Whenever Jacob, the first thing that he says in, uh, in his narrative in I think 25 or 26, he says, I am Esau. In order to trick his dad into giving him his blessing, he has to pretend to be his brother. He has to pretend to be somebody else. So here, God asks him, what's your name? And Jacob doesn't say that I'm Esau. He actually claims his own identity here and says, I am Jacob, which, as we know, means deceiver, conniver, trickster. And he says, I am I am the trickster. So God gets him to, in a way, sort of confess his own identity, sort of live up to, to who he's been in his life. Uh, and, and then he says, the East says, your name won't be Jacob any longer, but it'll be Israel. The term is Yisrael. Uh, because you struggled with God and with men and won. This idea that Jacob finally becomes okay with, with who he is and, and, and what he's done in his life and all the conflict that was in chapters 27, 28, 29, and 30, all of these uh, 
just really messy family and business relationships have brought him in this wrestling match with God where both people still aren't letting go. It's this idea that no matter what conflict, no matter what struggles you have in your life, that God is not letting you go. God is willing to, whenever you think you have your your business in order, whenever you're going to present things in a very organized, structured way, God comes in the middle of the night. You know, this this is the Hebrew God, the Yahweh, uh, as we find out in Exodus. The God of Abraham and Isaac isn't this sort of uh, really structured uh, Greek God of mythology, but it is this really scandalous and mysterious God who breaks into the middle of the night uh, and wrestles with you. This very different picture of God. This one that is willing to, to tussle until dawn. And whenever you think that you're going to even then get a particular blessing, you get something entirely different. God gives you a new identity. And the blessing that Jacob wanted maybe of safety and security, he doesn't get here from God. But God essentially says the blessing is the struggle. The blessing is the wrestling with God. And so much of our uh, life as a community, I hope, is uh, one that we're all willing to, to come here on Sundays and Wednesdays and, and Tuesday nights and be an honest and authentic group of people who aren't afraid to, to wrestle with God, that we recognize that, that life is a struggle in, in different ways for, for all of us. We all have very different uh, work. We all have really different family relationships. We all have different struggles. Uh, but that, that doesn't uh, make us shy away from this wrestle because who we are in this, in this Christian tradition, this, uh, this Jewish tradition, is a people who are encouraged to wrestle with God and I would say even uh, demanded to, to wrestle with God, that at our very core that this is who we are called to be, that when, whenever we have uh, identifiers that we either get from birth or from culture uh, God speaks a different word onto our lives I uh, some of you know I, I lived in Maui for, for a year doing an internship after uh, graduating college. It was really rough. Uh, really terrible. So, so I did learn to surf there. And one of the that was the very first thing we did. So the intern program that I was a part of was uh, there were four guys and four girls, all from all over the United States. We all moved there at the same time and lived together in this really weird, weird Christian real-world scenario. So, so we're all, uh, you know, fresh, fresh from our uh, homes and, and places where we went to college. And the first thing that they did was take us out uh, snorkeling and then take us out and teach, taught us how to surf. And so one of the, I, I really wanted to learn how to surf, never had been surfing before, and I, I was terrible. <laughs> I was really terrible at surfing, and I still am. Um, but one thing you, you learn very quickly when you are taken out to surf for the first time is whether you're in for it or, or not. So uh, I, I fell off, and then 
I, I fell off again, and then that happened about 20 times. But I loved the, I loved the struggle. I loved being out in the water, uh, and I was very willing to, to fall surfing over and over and over again. My other three roommates, not at all. They fell off. They, they, had, had, they had enough uh, of surfing. So I would go out you know, after that first lesson, and I would just go out by myself, and uh, just I fell off a bunch of times, and I think a lot of surfers will uh, will sort of understand the sentiment that surfing is this 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 constant struggle that uh, you never really arrive at surfing. You you simply enjoy being a part of something bigger than you. You simply enjoy being out in the water, uh, whether there are big waves or small waves. I can only ride small waves. Uh, but that th there's this idea that you're okay with the struggle because you know at the heart of surfing it really is the struggle that you really never know what what the type of wave you'll get and you're okay with that that is that is sort of the the fun and the core of surfing and I think that really speaks to uh, the Christian message today for for us when we think of love God. I think one of the first things that we should think of is let's just try to love the struggle of it. Um, there's no, there's no pretending here. It's, it's hard. We never, we never arrive at God. You know, we don't have, uh, you know, a step process here where, uh, you know, uh, so many years in, you're at a particular point in your journey. This whole thing is a different journey for all of us. It is a struggle, a wrestle that we are called to, and God speaks onto us the identity of that struggle, plain and simple. So when we think about um, naming identities and the struggle between uh, God and the struggle uh, as a community in God and what this looks like out, out in the world, because whenever you look at the Jacob story, it's not just this... Uh, mysterious wrestle with God, it's also very much tied into his work, his family, and his relationship with his brother. So there's this entire other half that has very real consequences in his life. And it's hard to, you can't really separate off this section without tying it into the whole story, which is why I read that really long part at the beginning. So we pick up this story where he has wrestled with God, but now what, right? Morning's come, and there's going to be 400 dudes waiting for, for Jacob. So we'll pick up the story in, uh, in, verse, in uh, chapter 33. And Jacob looked up and saw Esau approaching with 400 men. So he's now got this limp. He's got this terrible hip, thigh, muscle that's torn or displaced. And he looks up and he sees a healthy Esau approaching with his 400 men. And we'll skip to verse 4. Esau ran to meet Jacob and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. So there is this moment of reconciliation that uh, not, this is not necessarily brought on by God, but this is brought on by, by Esau's own giving spirit. That Esau ran to meet him, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him as they wept. Um, and Jacob says in verse 8, I asked for my master's kindness, and Esau said, uh, I already have plenty, brother. Keep what is yours. 
So we, when we think about loving God, we think about this struggle and this wrestle, but not one that is purely spiritual, like we're just like sitting in our closets reading our Bibles all the time and trying to wrestle with God, but that our wrestle with God involves very real-world scenarios in our lives, uh, that it involves reconciliation and conflict with our coworkers and our brothers and, and families uh, that all hopefully works towards reconciliation here. The blessing is the struggle. I just want to close uh, with a quote from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's uh, very influential uh, for, for me personally. If you ever have the opportunity to read anything by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, I would highly recommend it. Uh, was a German theologian who was uh, captured uh, by the Nazis, by Hitler, uh, in the 1940s and imprisoned and then eventually executed by uh, Hitler and the Nazi government. Uh, but in one of his letters uh, from prison, he references this idea from when he was a teacher. And he says, For all of us, the way into the promised land, Jacob, passes through the night, and that we too enter it as, as those strangely marked by the scars and the struggle with God and the struggle for God's kingdom and grace, and that we enter into the land of God and our brother as limping warriors. So as we leave this place, may our lives be characterized by a fierce struggle and a fierce love for God, where we come honest and authentic, that we know that our love for God is, is not divorced from our love for our community and our brothers and our sisters, uh, that we leave with the knowledge and the, the heart posture that we know if we're wrestling with God, we can't go wrong. And may we continue to struggle for earth as it is in heaven, in that our God calls us into the land to be limping warriors. Let's pray. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, may we also love each other. For we know that no one has ever seen God, not even Jacob. That if we love one another, God remains with us and in us, and his love is made perfect in us and through us. And that we, we love God because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but we decide that we don't like our brother or sister because he or she is a liar, then, then, we, uh, then our love for God cannot be seen. We have uh, one important commandment, Lord, that we, that we pray today. Um, that we may be people who, who claim to love God and, and that we love our brothers and sisters too. Lord, we thank you that uh, no matter what names we were uh, born with or uh, what we are characterized by in our workplaces, that you characterize us by being God wrestlers. That whenever society speaks on a, a word onto us that... Uh, is derogatory whenever uh, uh, culture and our Instagram feeds uh, want a particular image from us uh, we know that your image of us is one is one of a, a limping warrior and may we never forget that you call us to uh, to love others as Jesus loved others 
uh, that you bring us near to you by, by your Holy Spirit, that we may wrestle all of our lives, and that we may live uh, lives that are, are pleasing to you. And we're blessed to be here, and we're incredibly grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.